God is good indeed. That really is the foundation of our faith. It's important that we continue to affirm uh, the goodness of God, that a good God created a good world. And if that's not our starting point, then our theology, uh, the way we think about God, uh, the way we read Scripture becomes warped. And I think it's especially when we enter into those times that we talked about last week, the Paris Moss, uh, the temptations, the tests, the trials of various kinds. That's when that claim of God's goodness is really challenged. And it's crucial for us to continue to affirm and to confess and to remember that God is not out to trip us up. And God is not aloof to our pain. God hears and God responds. God is truly good. In fact, God entered into the mess. Uh, the Gospel of John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and experienced those temptations and trials just like we do, and especially the trial of the cross. If we ever begin to doubt the goodness of God, we go to the foot of the cross, remembering the great lengths that God goes to in order to rescue us from our sins. And so that song we just sang together, the king of my heart, we're going to keep singing that song and keep affirming that God is good to the core. God is good. And because of God's goodness, that invites a response from us. And we gather to respond. We gather to worship. Uh, worshiping God is the first of four statements that describe who we are as a people. We are a people here at Brentwood Oaks who are devoted to worshiping God. We're about to make a transition, though. Uh, we're going to move to the next statement in the months to come, bringing people to faith. It's not that we're leaving worshiping God. We're going to continue to worship God, uh, but we will have a different point of emphasis. And over the last several weeks, as, as has been mentioned, we've been working through the Lord's Prayer one line at a time to help us think about our worship. But instead of moving on to the next thing, I thought that we would spend a little more time with the Lord's Prayer and especially the last line of the Lord's Prayer. And think about the connection between the Lord's Prayer and worship. But before we go to the prayer, let's talk about worship. What is worship? Have you thought about that? Well, you'll have the opportunity to write something down here in a few seconds. And uh, we, in public speaking, for those of you who take public speaking courses, you develop an elevator pitch where if you're in the elevator with maybe a potential future boss, you have 30 seconds to talk about who you are and uh, what you bring to the table. And well, what if you're in an elevator and someone just comes up and asks you, what's worship? That would be an interesting conversation, an interesting way to start a conversation. Uh, but let's practice writing out our elevator pitch. So on the back of your order of worship or wherever you take notes, why don't you write down your answer to the question, what is worship? I'll give you, I'll give you an extra 15 seconds, so 45 seconds to write down your answer.
I mentioned before, I don't have my cell phone. I have no idea how long 45 seconds is. So I could be up here five minutes. And uh, some of you may be a little surprised at how difficult it is to define worship. I actually went through this exercise earlier in the week, and I was, it took me longer than 45 seconds to try to figure out, okay, how would I articulate this? Of course, with worship, uh, you could go to the classic definition. You could split the word apart and study the etymology and, and try to figure out what worship is. And worship, in a sense, is attributing uh, worth to someone or something. Uh, so we recognize uh, something praiseworthy in an object of worship, and we affirm this through our words and through maybe ritual or through practice. Uh, there are a lot of different authors who have written on this, and one of, the, one of the things that I noticed in reading different authors and talking about worship is that there was a two-part sequence when it came to worship. Uh, the first part is God revealing himself, revealing his character, revealing what he has done to us and uh, for us. And this can be done through scripture, this can be done through nature, but there's this revelation portion of worship. And the other part is our response. God has revealed his character to us, and then we respond in worship. And one of the amazing things is that God is active in both that. God is active in revealing his character, but also in empowering us to respond. So there's that, those two words, revelation and response that's tied into worship. But the definition that I really appreciate the most comes from one of my favorite authors, James K.A. Smith, and he wrote the book, You Are What You Love. We, we read this in one of our topical classes a few summers ago, and he speaks of this reveal and responding aspect to worship. I'm going to go ahead and put the quote up so you can read it for yourself. He says, the church, the body of Christ, is the place where God invites us to renew our loves, reorient our desires, and retrain our appetites. Christian worship is the feast where we acquire new hungers for God and for what God desires, and are then sent into his creation to act accordingly. And so you will... You will have noticed, many of you, on our order of worship, we begin with a gathered moment, and then we end with a sense, gathered and sent. And I think that's captured here in this, this little definition of Christian worship. And I love that image of the feast. It reminds me of uh, what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, uh, the psalmist that, that Peter quotes in 1 Peter chapter 2, which we read on Wednesday night, this last Wednesday night, this idea of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. That's what this gathering is all about. We taste and see that the Lord is good, and in a way we, we set our taste buds, we calibrate our taste buds for God. Because the truth is, there are other types of foods in this world. There are other players in the game, so to speak. Let's Let's call them what they are. The idols of the age, they call out for our attention. They call out for our allegiance. They call out for our worship. Whether it's money, power, 
prestige, entertainment, sexual fulfillment, politics, academia. This is all in Austin, by the way, uh, the New Age spiritualism. That modern quest of finding identity and kind of building your identity from the ground up and then projecting it to the world, all these things can become our gods. But when we taste and see that the Lord is good and when we recognize that, that our connection to God is the most important thing in life, the most important thing in this world, then those other things taste less sweet. They actually become more bitter whenever we partake of these idols. That's what worshiping God is all about. It's drawing our gaze, tuning our ears, uh, recalibrating our taste buds for the one true God in a world of false gods. And this is where the Lord's Prayer comes in. This prayer that Jesus taught His disciples, there's a revelation and a response aspect to the Lord's Prayer. There's the renewing, the reorienting, recalibrating our love for God on the one hand, and then responding in the creation accordingly on the other. And I, I believe this is all captured in the Lord's Prayer. And even the last line, the doxology, the final amen of the prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, this is a bit of a conundrum for a preacher because it's pretty clear that that doxology is not really original in Scripture. It's really not there. And this is something we become aware of when we go to other churches, churches that are more formal. We call them high churches or liturgical churches. Uh, some of you have a background in the Catholic Church. If you go to a Catholic wedding or a Catholic funeral and you say the Lord's Prayer together, uh, they will end with, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I've gotten caught a few times of actually starting the doxology and realizing I'm the only one speaking here. And to their credit, uh, that, that line, the earliest manuscripts don't have the doxology. But the early church did eventually add this line. And I believe this line provides a nice summary of what the Lord's Prayer is all about. I will mention that although it's not original, it is scriptural. Because clearly the early church was inspired by 1 Chronicles 29 and the words of David. And just a little bit of context to 1 Chronicles 29. Uh, David, if you recall, wants to build a house for God, build a temple for God in Jerusalem. And God says, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Talking about his royal line that would go on forever. Uh, something that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The descendant of David who reigns on the throne forever and ever. And God tells David, you're not going to build a house for me, but your son will. Solomon is going to build the temple. Well, David wants to help out as much as he can. And so he gathers all of the supplies for the temple. And after gathering the supplies, David says this. And I'm going to put this on the screen as well because there's some important words here. But this is what 1 Chronicles 29, 10-13 through 13 says. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, 
Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are the power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. And so the church, through the centuries, has attached a summary of 1 Chronicles 29 to the end of the Lord's Prayer with those three words. Kingdom, power, and glory. Three words that I would argue are not only a summary of 1 Chronicles, and not only a summary of the Lord's Prayer, but also they give us our marching orders when it comes to worship. And to further explore this idea, I'd like to offer up another image that connects the worship, uh, our worship to the Lord's Prayer, our lives of worship, and the mission that we have as the disciples, the followers of Jesus. Kind of a bridge between worshiping God and bringing people to faith. And it's the image of something that's a kind of pandemic that's been around before the last three years, but it's a pandemic that goes back decades It's the pandemic of distracted driving. Some of you are very familiar with this, maybe too familiar with distracted driving. I believe there's been some form of distracted driving, even going back to the days of the Model T. I'm sure there was someone who was driving down the road and saw a cow or something on the side of the road and drove off the road. I'm sure it happened back then. Those of you who grew up in the 50s and 60s, you know that the car radio was vitally important for your driving experience and how many accidents happened when you were fidgeting with the radio dial, trying to get the right frequency and maybe running off the road. And of course, the instructions that were given to us by our parents, by our driver's ed teacher, was to keep your eyes on the road. Keep your eyes on the road. Not a literal command, but really a way of saying, keep focused. Don't look around. Don't get distracted by the radio. Keep your eyes on the road. And of course, this is especially challenging. And I would pull out my cell phone if I had it right now. But uh, this has led to all kinds of dangerous hazards on the road. I think back in the last 15 years of the near accidents and even some of the accidents that I've been involved with, almost all of them involved a cell phone. Uh, Whether it was a cell phone in someone else's hands or a cell phone in my own hand uh, one time. There have been laws that have been passed that have been very helpful, helpful laws and campaigns to not text and drive. Some of you parents have really thought through this and I talked to one parent who, who said they, ha- they have their kids, they've trained their children to put their cell phone on do not disturb and they actually have a way of checking that and I think that's very, very thoughtful, very helpful. The problem is we've been trained by our cell phones. 
Uh, we create the technology, we shape the technology, and then the technology shapes us. I heard some, someone say that one time. We have been trained to respond to the chimes, the alerts, the glow of the cell phone. And it's easy, it's actually a habit to take your eyes off the road and to respond to that little device that's crying out for attention. How many tragedies have happened because the cell phone took a person's eye off the road? It could happen to the best driver if you're not careful, cautious, and discerning. And I see this phenomenon of distracted driving really as a metaphor for our worship and what we do here and what we do on a daily basis in our personal worship time. I see this as something that the daily routine of praying the Lord's Prayer is all about. I see this as something that that doxology is all about, that worship as the Lord's Prayer directs us is a way for us to keep our eyes on the road amidst the distractions. There are so many distractions in this world. There are so many things that scream out to us for our attention. There are so many things that, that call out to us for allegiance, even a kind of worship. They call out to us and they say, take your eyes off of God and look at me. But this has been true of the people of God for all time. You go back into the Old Testament, into the, into the New, you look at even the, the context in which Jesus gave this prayer. There were all kinds of idols that were trying to draw in the disciples of Jesus. Perhaps the one that was the most alluring was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Uh, the, the peace that was ushered in by Roman military might, by the Roman way of life, by the Roman Caesar who was blessed by the Roman gods and all the great engineering of the Roman Empire. And all that power was on full display wherever you went into the Roman Empire. You were bombarded with the symbols of Rome. And no doubt the early Christians were tempted to place their, their faith and their security, and their economic stability, and even their physical well-being in the Pax Romana instead of God. They were called in a clash of kingdoms. One kingdom was built on the power structures of a fallen world, a kingdom run on the fuel of wealth and status and war and tribalism and greed and indulgence and sensuality and slavery. And the temptation for the early church was to align with this kingdom. And it was a powerful temptation. It was very alluring, especially whenever the heat was turned up and our spiritual ancestors had to give the good confession in the face of persecution. But there was only one kingdom that would last forever. There's only one kingdom that will last forever. The kingdom that's not built on domination, it's not built on wealth and status, but it's built on a cross. And it's built on this radical and sacrificial love for others. It's a kingdom that completely turns the values of this world upside down. It's a kingdom where glory and power are redefined, where the last will be first, the first will be last. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you must become like a child. You must become servant of all, just as Jesus did, who offered his life as a ransom 
for many. And here we are as we close this morning. 2,000 years removed from Jesus giving this model prayer to his disciples. There in the shadow of the Pax Romana. And we're caught up in the same clash of kingdoms. We hear those same voices calling out to us for attention. Calling out to us for allegiance. Calling out to us for worship. Voices that take our focus off of God. Voices that draw us, draw our gaze and demand that we take our eyes off the road. But, just as we lose focus, we gather together with the church family, or we enter into our quiet space of devotional time, where we pray, where we read scripture, where we say the Lord's Prayer for those of you who practice this, where we say that doxology that in a sense puts those voices in a do not disturb mode. The Lord's Prayer is a way for us to keep our eyes on the road. And that doxology, the way that the early church ended that prayer, is an alert to us of the dangers of those other voices. And we hear the reminder that the kingdom and true power and true glory is not something that we build from the bottom up. It's not something that we orchestrate. It's not something of this world. It belongs to God. In a world of distraction... We say the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, not as some magic incantation, if I say these words, good things will happen to me, but as an orientation in life that not only sets our priorities in worship, but it sets our priorities in mission. This prayer is first and foremost about God and his purposes and his desires and his mission. The hallowing of his name, the inbreaking of his kingdom, and we join in with that mission every time we say the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and every time we gather with the church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the Lord's Prayer is deeply connected to our worship, both, both as a corporate family and as individuals. And I am grateful for the people in this room who, through their example, uh, through comments that I've heard in conversation or in our Bible classes, have challenged me to say this prayer. And I've said this prayer for years now, every day. And it continues to shape me. Uh, not only does it shape my prayer life and my worship, but it also shapes what I'm supposed to be doing in this world. Worshiping God. Bringing people to faith. Conforming to the image of Jesus. Caring for others in need. Uh, that's all bundled up in the Lord's prayer. 
Brothers and sisters, we are wired for worship. We are worshiping creatures. Everyone worships something. As James Smith says, it's not, it's not whether we worship, it's what we worship or whom we worship. So the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray is a tool for our worship. It's a way of keeping our eyes on the road. It's a way of drawing our gaze to the true and the living God, the only one who is worthy of our praise in a world of false gods. Thine is the kingdom, is the power, is the glory forever. Amen. And we respond and we join in with that worship and with that mission that God has entrusted to us. This morning we are invited to respond here in worship as we taste and see that the Lord is good, as we remember what God has done for us, the God who loves the unlovable, the God who has touched the untouchable, the God who has made a way for us to come and gather around his banquet table, not by anything that we could do or earn, but as a gift of grace. We taste that, we remember that, we recognize that, And we have the opportunity to respond. This morning we're going to respond in invitation through a prayer song. So if you would, as we respond to the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, let's stand and let's sing.